Is this the dagger? Illegal substitution, too many men on the field, Saskatchewan. Gizmo has a block and the sideline. He has not stepped out, he may go all the way. He needs one block and he'll do it easily. Promise mess, I wouldn't do this. McDavid stops up, what a move, shoots, scores! Hey everybody, welcome to The Outsiders, powered by the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. My name is Bryn Griffiths. Joining us as always is Robin Brownlee. And joining us on this podcast, number 93, is the president of the Edmonton Elks, Victor Quee. Welcome to the city of Edmonton, which is, well, I actually, let's change that. Welcome home, man. Thank you, man. Thank, thanks, Bryn. Thanks, Robin. It is a pleasure and it feels good to be home. So I guess the number one question that I've been thinking about over the past week is we know why you came home, obviously some family reasons, but was it tough to come back home? Because sometimes people say it's always hard to, to return home. What about for you? I would say, you know, there's, there's also the saying that the best part of going away on holidays is coming back home. Right. You, you know, that feeling when you, even though you can have an amazing holiday, whether it's in the Caribbean or Mexico or whatever it might be, but you walk into the doors of your home and you just sort of like, ah, it feels, feels right. It feels good. Right. And that's what Edmonton feels like to me of because of family and friends and um, it and just the familiarity although the city looks very different because uh, I haven't lived here in 20 years or 20 plus years um, but it, it feels like that and 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 really good now of course COVID threw all of that for a little bit of a loop um, but reconnecting with people and uh, just funny things like I, when they made the announcement the the school board here on Twitter pulled up a picture of me from like elementary or something like that, you know, yeah. and I'm full geek on with the big geeky glasses and my hair is all over the place. And, and they posted that and they said, Hey, congratulations. And I thought, Oh, that's really cool. That's home. Yeah. Yeah. Only an old relative or family will pull up an old picture of you to, to, to tease you. Right. Like that's something, yeah. that's something that your brother does. Now, Victor, we were talking before we started recording. Um, you, one writer interviewed you and, and he talked about you walking into that stadium to the then Eskimo game as a 12 year old. Um, I think we all have those those moments that get burned into a, our, our very being for whatever reason. Um, what, if anything, about walking into that stadium at, as a 12-year-old boy has stayed with you basically a lifetime until now that made you, uh, was part of you wanting to come back? At that time, at that age, the world and political sensitivities were really different. You know, things that we accepted back then are completely unacceptable now, whether it's equality, diversity, inclusion, et cetera, mm -hmm. and race, culture, religion, and different levels of tolerances. And I just actually assumed that racism was normal because I was 12 years old. I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand what that was and those barriers in front of me. And whenever I put on a jersey and I came to a game, those barriers like magically disappeared. They just, it, it, it didn't matter at all who you were, where you lived, whether you're North side, South side, Catholic, brown, green, purple, you just came there and you were part of this big party of cheering. And that was this magical transformation to me about sports that has stayed with me for my whole life of how the, the power of sports has this ability to unite communities in a way that nothing else can. Music can't do that. Dance can't do that. Like it's just a different, a, a different glue that sports is able to, to create. Do you remember your first favorite player when you stepped into the stadium back in the eighties? 
Um, I would say standing the test of time. Of course, there's obvious ones: Warren Moon, yeah. Damon Allen, big name. But obviously, one of the ones who was the biggest in the community was Gizmo. And when I got into high school, he gave me hope to think that I could be a football player. I'm like, well, he's about my height and I'm pretty fast. So surely I could do, you know, something right. Little did I know that my scat, my skill level was at a one and his was at a 20 and <laughs> the, that dream quickly, you know, disappeared. So did you get a chance to catch up with him because he's still around? I did. I messaged him um, maybe I think before I, I started on the job and I was just really excited and I shared with him that I was going to be the new president CEO and he wrote back right away and um, we just exchanged a couple of messages and I asked him, can he still do a flip? And he's like, well, <laughs> not without injuring myself. <laughs> Victor, I was looking at something you said, and I want to ask you about it to bring it up uh, to today. And you just referenced it. The quote I'm reading here is this. I realized that God had given me this desire to be an elite professional athlete. But as a part of the joke to me, he decided not to give me any of the physical attributes or skills or talent required to actually achieve that. That started me on my career of, well, what else can I do in sports? Now, we've all had that moment where we realized being a professional athlete wasn't in the cards. We aren't fast enough, tough enough, big enough. Uh, we're not. It's not happening for us. And we walk away and not much comes from it. You've turned that, it seems to me, into a, something that drives you, something that motivates you. Here you are today, president of a Canadian Football League club, uh, a lot of kids aren't good enough, but they don't end up as presidents of teams in the Canadian Football League. Well, that that is true. But that theme of God playing practical jokes on me is quite common throughout my entire life. And it started off with my mother convinced me that I was very good looking. And so <laughs> I thought I was going to have a career as a supermodel. It appears that there is not a great demand for short, chubby Filipino dads you know, in, in the supermodel market. And so that was moved aside. Then I thought, well, I love music. Wouldn't it be awesome to play in a stadium, you know, and be an artist. And you know, I did piano lessons. I play guitar, but my brother got all the musical talent. He is gifted to, to no end when it comes to, to, to music. And I, I was relegated to the business side of it. So I quickly started to learn that my skill set is more on helping build heroes and and taking the business acumen side of things and contributing that part to sports. Okay, let's talk about the gap from when you left Edmonton to when you returned to Edmonton. Let's there's so much in here and I think we need to unpack some of it. So you leave Edmonton to go and do what first? I just had finished the Edmonton 2001 World Championships in Athletics. And then, uh, if you remember, uh, Twin Towers were struck. Yes. And the, the, the mood of the world was changed. It was somber. We were looking for stability, answers, security, comfort. Um, and uh, I ran the Bill, Bill Smith. He was running for mayor in Edmonton. And I ran his campaign. And that was his third it was third time he was running and he was successfully reelected and after that i got a job at golf canada out in oakville ontario working with an amazing group of people um you know some friends that are still there a guy like dan pino that had i had worked with he runs the communications there and they're just phenomenal guys and the pga tour is one of the most successful sport properties in the world because they're just so efficient week after week. They're just like a finely tuned machine. Um, and then I went to, to Asia, work at ESPN, which is in Asia, you know, that was one of the world's largest broadcasters because the, the scale in Asia is so different. It's the only place in the world where you have 2 billion people on one time zone. Yeah. You know, you think about Canada, what we've got to deal with, with however many time zones we have here, and you got 2 billion people in one time zone. So when you go live on sports in Asia, eh, on a bad day, you only get a hundred million. Yeah. Right. <laughs> huh. And and then you, 
then you went a different direction and you took the skill set that you learned at those other jobs and you put that to use. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your mixed martial arts experience and how crazy that went for you. Um, again, a, a bit of luck. You know, I, I have been so fortunate to be around great people, amazing bosses. And at ESPN, a big part of my job was to analyze every sport property in the world and find out what could be the next multi-billion dollar opportunity in Asia for ESPN. So I have binders and binders of analysis of every sport in the world. Football, tennis, basketball darts, marching band, you name it. I could tell you the business fundamentals of how it applies globally into Asia as, as a business model. And I was, as I was looking at that, a couple of things jumped out. This is, um, you know, 15 years ago or 13 years ago or something like that. And one of those opportunities was around um, mixed martial arts. And I actually, under ESPN, had launched the before one championship launched the first ever Asia wide mixed martial arts um, uh, promotion uh, under ESPN. That was 12 events broadcast throughout Asia. And that was sort of where I started to cut my teeth around that sport and understand where there was opportunities. Um, our, our founder and chairman and current CEO for one championship is an amazing entrepreneur from wall street. And he's also a martial artist and was really, really fortunate for us to cross paths and been able to take his expertise in the finance world and in the business world and match that with my sport business expertise and my um, relationships across Asia and launch one championship together. You know, Victor, I find it uh, interesting how people who bust their asses, work hard, uh, commit to collaboration with other people seem to end up talking about getting lucky a lot. I don't think there's as much luck as there is luck tends to follow those, those who work. So you come back here and I don't know if this is true. I think I read it somewhere. Did you, uh, put your name forward for the, uh, the president's position uh, that Chris Presson en ended up getting a few years ago. And how did you go from uh, not getting at that time to uh, where you are today? Yeah, that one was a little bit misreported, but definitely it was something that was on my radar because they were looking for, for things, for roles, but it, it wasn't the right opportunity, the right timing um, at back then. And uh, just, I had, I was actually still, I was still living in Asia yeah. and um, a, a number of other, my, my business was continuing to grow. Like, um, so there was a, a number of things, but we, you know, you talk about luck and yes, I'm not saying that hard work is irrelevant. And of course that definitely is, 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 is it, but I have found that um, even though if you put in all the sacrifices, you do need lady luck to shine on you in the right way to, to, to give you something else. Because just at the same time, I've put in a lot of hard work into things and lady luck was not on my side and they failed. And that that's life, right? Now, hopefully you chalk up more of those wins and losses, but I, I'm, not, I'm not so naive or egotistical to think that everything I've done in my life is a hundred percent because of me and I did it all. And it's all my hard work. That's, that's not true. I, I am so, you know, I travel around the world and I look at starving kids sleeping in the street, eating out of dumpsters mm -hmm. and living on in a dump yard in the middle of the, of the Philippines, as an example, yeah. I think how lucky am I that I had of nothing I did on my own by some miracle I my parents decided to move to Canada and I had the privilege of being born in Canada and I'm already at a head start because I've had that fortune to be here in Canada compared to anybody else in the world and that is uh if I if I had been born in the ghettos of the Philippines on a on a garbage you know dump I, I probably would not have had this success so I really understand how all those dots and I appreciate how all those dots in life connect in people and connect me to you. Like my grandfather always used to say, even best friends were strangers at some point. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I look at that and I think of, I look at you guys, I'm like, well, this is the first time we're connecting. Who knows what's going to happen in 10 years from now, right? Like that's how life is and it's magical that way. So you step into this position and I mean, wow. Uh, as a guy who grew up watching this football club from the late 60s, because I've been around that long, the last two years have been really tough to the point of almost indifference, which I think is almost worse in a lot of ways than somebody who might be passionate, still watches, but says they don't care, but they care. And I think indifference started to move in a little bit here in this particular market. So you're stepping in here now and you're taking this on. You have Chris Jones, who's, I think, done a great job over the last few weeks in uh, filling out his roster. But you step into a situation where you got a lot of, you got a roof to repair here. And you've done a remarkable job in the short period of time that you've been here because you're connecting with everybody from media to fans, to sponsors, to the football side. How did you know how to step in correctly? Because others have not done that. Um, well, let, let me let me get some some wins on the board, you know, and, and really sure. produce results before I say that I've, I've done anything of, of any success. But my guiding philosophy is really simple. If you take away all these problems, all these things, I focus on really two very simple things. One, fans first. Everything we do has to be about fans first because we are nothing as a, who cares if you spend billions of dollars on your brand or on your logo and whatever colors you have. If you don't have any fans, it's absolutely irrelevant. You got to talk to the fans. You have to listen to the fans. You have to engage with the fans. It, you have to put yourself in a fan mindset. First and foremost, the second part that I focus on is our athletes. How do we make this the greatest experience for our athletes so they have the opportunity to showcase their talents? It's Chris's job to make the game happen and bring the right pieces of the puzzle together. It's our job as caretakers of the team, of, this, of the brand, to turn these athletes and their talents into heroes so that they form the next round of legacies of people and, and of children. And if you think about it, every sport, that is ultimately their challenge because it is, there's thousands and hundreds of thousands of athletes that are competing. And if in our particular, in our sport, in football, when they play, it's not like they're on the television screen for five hours a day. They're, and they're behind a mask. So the hero building and the support for the athlete does not actually happen during the television broadcast. Of course, the performance speaks for itself when you read the names on the jersey, but you have 365 days that you have to build them as an athlete to the community. Now, that's where the magic happens and the work, the real hard work happens. So that's what I focus on, those two things. Put fans first, athletes first, and if you get those two things right, everything else will fall in place. But if you get distracted and you're like, oh, our priority is how much is the price of popcorn? Like, no, no. Like, a, or our priority, you get caught in the weeds of all these little things. And there will always be a thousand problems to solve. But you go back to your North Star. Are we taking care of fans? Are we taking care of athletes? Everything else will fall in place. Victor, the, the taking care of fans, um, I don't want to talk about what has or hasn't been done with this franchise particularly because you know that it hasn't worked um, and it hasn't worked in the CFL in other locations. But when you talk about connecting with fans, uh, my wife, as it turns out, is from the Philippines and. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm no. Just joking. <laughs> no, but but here's the thing, and she'll say this, and I won't wander too far here, but she'll say this when we're on vacation in this town or that town. She will say to me, I don't see many other Asian people here. And we, Bryn and I don't know, we don't walk in those shoes. We're the old white guys that the CFL used to rely on to be the backbone. This fan base has to grow, not just for Edmonton, but for every team in the league. And how do we achieve, and it's a word that's used a lot now, the inclusiveness and, and expanding the tent 
to have people who aren't the traditional Canadian Football League fans say, hey, this looks like a cool game and I have a good time when I go. How do we get there? Robin, I got to push back on you on that because I disagree with the statement because the way it's framed of quote unquote old white guys in the league, it, 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 what it does is it breeds an undertone to say that you are the casualty of war of, of where the future is going. And that is wrong. That is wrong. The reason why we have any opportunity is because we have had fans that have been loyal and defied logic when they shouldn't be loyal and continue to be there. Those core fans, I don't care what your age, what your race, what your color is, you have been a loyal fan to green and gold for five years, 10 years, 50 years. And that ultimately is very, very important to the history of the organization and to the future of where we are going. Achieving and growing the pie of the audience and bringing new people is not a mutually exclusive goal from taking care of the foundation of the fans that have brought us here. So I want to push back on that because I hear that a lot from the league and they say they seem to paint these that paint you or that that people as the bad guys. And this is where we're that's wrong. That's wrong. We're here because of that. So my goal is how do we transfer the passion that you had to your wife, to this new demographic? How do we make them understand where that passion is? Yeah. And there's really little things that make a big difference. And I'll give you one, one example. When my parents used to bring new immigrants and they would stay with us in our house and they would come, one of the first things we would do is buy them a, a jersey, a football jersey, Edmonton Eskimos at that time, and we would bring them to a game. And we'd be like, look, this is what Edmonton is. If you can feel this and understand this, look at all these people walking around, get a beer, get a concession food, you know, whatever. This is what it feels like, you know, just like you take them to a festival or um, um, anything like that. Mm -hmm. So um, that turns people into lifelong fans. Now imagine Edmonton as the provincial capital where we swear in all the new citizens that are coming into Canada that are calling and choosing to make Edmonton and Alberta home. Imagine if every time that they were sworn in, we were there to greet them with a jersey mm. and someone from our representative and said, welcome to your new home. You are home. Here's this jersey. Yeah. And we love you. Be a part of it. And if you want to learn about Canadian history, culture, our sports, it's we have something called the CFL. Turn on your TV. Right. And it, it is not a massive marketing campaign where you got to hire an agency and pay them tens of billions of dollars and put billboards. Fans come individually, one on one, each person and each one is an inch by inch by inch at a time that you have to fight to bring them on board as a fan. This is a city of tradition. You know, we could talk about the 80s when you were kind of just immersing. We had the Oilers. We had the Eskimos then. The two teams really did work closely together. If if Wayne Gretzky wasn't on the sidelines cheering on the football team or a guy like Dan Kepley was at the old Coliseum cheering on the hockey guys, it just seemed like everybody was together. It seems like it's come apart a little bit lately. I'm not talking about the Oilers or the football club, but, you know, we had these common threads. Joey Moss is one. Dwayne Mandrusiak is another one. You've, you've talked about how we have to fix a few things that went wrong in the last little while. Can you elaborate? I know that you've felt it and you've sensed it and you've talked to people about it. Are you surprised that it has been that deep and that dramatic when it comes to how Edmontonians are viewing the way this football club is dealing with things? Um, do you mean, uh, do you mean, am I surprised in how um, Edmontonians are reacting to the changes? Yeah. And they, I think you also bring that element of hope that maybe we can fix a lot of this. And you've already addressed that in some of the things you've said about Dwayne, for example. You're you're uh, coming to us from your office at Commonwealth Stadium, and I look behind you, and it, I get excited just by seeing the stadium. I also see the names on the ring, and I'm thinking we have a guy who was part of this organization for 49 years who was basically just cast away in Dwayne Mandrusiak, and I'm thinking you fix a few of these little problems, and it's amazing how much that will bring people back to you. And, and I, and I'm sensing that you have felt that. Am I wrong? 
I know you're, you're absolutely right. But I also don't like to do things that are token activities because you have to understand, okay, could I easily just say, yeah, let's do this and let's do this with, with whatever changes or, you know, Dwayne, as an example that you bring up. But to me, business, people say, um, don't take business personally. You know, business is not personal. There's that saying, right? Yeah. But to me, this is personal. This business is personal because I, I chose this as a passion and I care about it. I care about the, the team. I care about the players. I care about the staff. So when something happens, it is personal to me. Like I really, it's not like, oh, that's business. I don't care. And this is a, a black and white financial decision on the ledger. Mm-hmm. No. So I don't want to rush into a decision to appease squeaky wheels without coming from a point of sincerity. And so I will look at everything and and objectively as best as I can make a decision that is right for the individual, that is right for me as the leader and the responsibilities that I have and right for the organization. Now, hopefully all those objectives line up to something that everyone's happy with, but sometimes they don't. And and I couldn't tell you right now, I've been five days on the job. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to, to look under the hood, really. I've just been sitting in the driver's seat, sort of turning the steering wheel a little bit, but I'm still in the garage. <laughs> now, I would only suggest just, just, I'm sure you've thought of this because I'm no smarter than you, believe me. If part of what you do is talking to the alumni, I think it'll be, a very easy decision uh, with what we're talking about specifically here. Looking ahead in general, and maybe that describes you, Victor, um, do you spend more time looking ahead or do you spend a little time glancing over your shoulder to learn from the past? Can you do one without the other? Um, I use this word, you know, gamers, people that video game, they have this word called cheat code. Yeah. And the cheat yeah. code is like being able to skip levels, right? It somehow gives you this, this access to, to advance further. And my philosophy with cheat codes is I've always read biographies. The only books that I read, I don't read fiction. I don't, the only books I read are biographies and I'm a massive biography geek of anybody. And the reason why is I feel like, these guys give you a cheat code for life. Like here is somebody who has achieved something, whatever it's in sports or business or Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, you know, that have achieved something in life and they're putting it down in writing to teach you what mistakes they did and what to avoid. And so I always look at that historically as giving me the cheat code for opportunities into the future. You talk about alumni, they're cheat codes. You talk about season ticket holders, they're cheat codes. So not all of the codes will advance you equally. The key is to prioritize them. And maybe I talk to somebody and only one out of 20 of their ideas is feasible. That's okay. Mm -hmm. That's one out out of 20. And that to me is, is worth the time. Does it worry you? I have two stepsons. One's 26. He knows the CFL exists. He comes occasionally. In particular, if he likes a halftime show, hangs around for the football, enjoys it. And then I also have a 15-year-old who doesn't even know the league exists. He's an NBA guy. And I look at these two. They're the best. For me, personally, they're the best marketing for me in terms of uh, what I do corporately with podcasting because I just pick their brains. I guess they're my cheat codes. But does it concern you when you see the a younger demographic that are really disconnected? And how do we find a way to get them back? Because I... I'd love nothing more than to go to a game with both of them and have them see the game the same way that I do. That's that's a pretty tall order, I, I think, but I think you guys can do it. Yeah, you're, and that's the that, that's a challenge every sport property has. Yeah, uh, tennis I think has the fastest de- degrading demographic. Like I think the average age of a tennis fan is sixty five years old or something like that. Wow. I, I read that stat. Like it's really they have a really big challenge. And, and some sports have figured out how to quickly innovate that, like F1 and their Netflix series, and to bring in a whole new audience. Um, audience. So there are different things. But again, I'm going to go back to what I said about fans first and athletes. In my opinion, the business of sports is very simple because it's about hope. 
And how do you create hope is you have to build heroes. And if you don't have heroes in your sport, that is, you don't have something for kids to look up to. Now the hero building takes time and there's a lot of factors into it. Um, people say often they would say to me, Oh, we need to make more school appearances and go to schools. Now, from from our time, that is accurate. That is true. But it's not actually, in my opinion, relevant today. Why? Because back then, to access your hero, the only way you knew about their life was if they came to your gymnasium. Mm-hmm. But today, to access the hero, you follow him on Instagram. You follow him on Twitter. You know what he ate for breakfast. You know what time he went to the toilet. You know everything about his life already. Yeah. So it's not that you're seeking the access to him, like to come to your school and your gym. What you are seeking is the reason to make him your hero. And that is the storytelling. You have a podcast because you storytell to the world. And and it's your job to put succinctly guest speakers, your storyline, to tell a story that hooks a listener. And that's the same tool that we need to do with our athletes. Every single athlete has an amazing story that got them, got them to where they are at. Why? I don't care who it is. Why? Because they beat you, but they beat us. They beat all of us. We all had that dream to do that. And they rose to the top and we didn't. So they have a story to tell. And now we got to unearth it. Just like you, right? You know, you do your research on your on your guests, and you're like, okay, I'm going to go this angle. That's that's our responsibility with with um, our our players. And then once we get that going, that starts to get the kids and 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 talking, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, when you talk about the the, the players to the classroom, talk about talk about dated and how things have changed. We have a. Uh, a 29-year-old who's out of the house and a 15-year-old, big gap there. With our 15-year-old, if I think so, I may think something's cool. And what I'll say to my son is, I'll say, lame or not. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll and he'll sometimes he'll say lame and I'll be disappointed because I thought it was really cool, or vice versa. But that is the future, and it's changed so much. Um, if you have the product and you have the desire to communicate, um, how do you do that in, in, in this era is everything is so much of it's by the phone now, by the social media. Um, you have to be aware of that. If you're not on the front edge of that, you're getting left behind. It seems to me. So how important is it to not only have a message, but to communicate it properly? Well, you, you, the, the battle to win is the battle of the mobile phone. Now, five years ago, 10 years ago, you could make that debatable. You'd be like, oh, really? Uh, but today, every single data point clearly shows that if you don't win the mobile phone, you will not win the future and you won't survive for the next decade. So definitely that is a big part of the strategy. What has changed, Robin, in that in the past, You are the only megaphone that I had to access fans. I had to write, I had to go to you. You had to write a story and that story had to get published in a monopoly publishing company or do, and they spoke to the fans, but today people can make their own podcasts and they can have their own following of 10,000 or 10 million. And, and then you've got whatever micro influencers on social media, et cetera, et cetera. So there are multiple channels to reach the fan. Um, What surprises me is when fans say, this is the first time a president and CEO if any team or in the league has liked my tweet or liked my Instagram or replied to me or followed. And that's such a shock to me because that's the essence of sports. Like we have this amazing tool. Yeah. And um, if, if Twitter was brand new and it just opened up last week and then I would get it, but that's not the case. And it's just like, I essentially what we had to do, 10 years ago, we'd hire a consultant, pay them millions of dollars to talk to all these fans and give us their feedback. And now you just do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Hey, uh, we know you're tight for time. 
and we appreciate it. And I know we've got a million questions, but the best part is you're going to be around for a long time. So we'll be able to ask those questions. I just got to wrap this one up quickly here with one question, and that is, so you've been in the office for five days. You've had this gig for a little while longer than that. Who has surprised you by texting you or phoning you right off the top? Has there been where you went, wow, I never saw that coming? Anybody just kind of out of the blue just uh, just track you down and say, I wanted to welcome you to this job or, hey, listen, thanks for taking this on. Yeah, you know, what hit me was I got a Twitter uh, direct message from Damon Allen oh. and he congratulated me. And I was like, what? What is going on in my world right now where he messaged me first? And I was just like, I, and, and it really, that's when it started to hit me like, wow, I have this responsibility to take care of this legacy that the board has put into our hands as, as administrators of, and of which all these great players and alumni are a part of it. And they're looking to see, okay, what are you gonna do now? What's the next chapter? And that fills me with excitement and hope. And I'd say there's a, of course, a little bit of fear of, of failure and what will you do? But I always say, fear is okay. You just need to be, have a little bit more bravery than fear, <laughs> but fear is all right. You got to embrace it. Thanks for your time. This is great. We will be talking again throughout the season. I'm already uh, jacked up about here. We are in February and I'm already getting excited. Not only just to talk to you, seeing the stadium in behind you, it's, uh, it's uh, making me excited about the football season. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I really appreciate it, and uh, best of luck on everything. You know, I was really excited when I think I got to game 300 when I was broadcasting in Moose Jaw, the Warrior Games. I thought, 300, what a great mark that is. Oh, I'm very proud of that. I guess I should be. 300 is 300. But you know what? When you've done over 2,000 games like our next guest, Les Lazarick, the voice of the Saskatoon Blades who joins us, Les, 2,000 games, that's a ton. It's a lot. It is a lot. There's no doubt about that. It's a lot of miles or kilometers on a bus and people go, how the heck can you do that? Why do you do it? Uh, passion, I guess, for hockey, passion for the young guys playing it because they're the up and comers. And then as far as the bus is concerned, I've mastered the ability to have it as my rolling office so I can work along and I sleep very, very well on the bus at a lot of people's expenses because I apologize for all the snoring that I do, but hey, that's just the way it is. I, I'm fine with it. Everything's fine. Now, I've got to ask after all these seasons for you, Les, and it's a big part of it. The on-the-air stuff, we can talk about that forever. But the one, <laughs> the one thing that I didn't miss once I left, and I only spent four years in the Western Hockey League, I guess – seven if you count the time while I was still in school covering hockey down in in New Westminster but um the travel man I tell you the one thing about junior hockey you're not taking any charter flights you are on the bus with the foamy uh the foamies on the floor and for me it meant and a guy you'd know uh on the to the right of me was Ken Hitchcock uh, in front of me was Kelly Moore, yeah. uh, who did the Blazers forever. And the, the glamour and the, hey, I'm covering hockey for a living, or in your case, a broadcasting hockey for a living. For me, it only went so far. When I was out of there, it was a big, oh, finally. <laughs> but for you, Les, wow. Yeah, no, I, I mean, glamour? No, there's no glamour to it. I mean, it, it's, it's the, the most glamour there is is you know, just being able to say that I saw so-and-so come up through the ranks on his way to what he was able to do in the National Hockey League. And when I think of all the kids that way, uh, whether they're Blades, whether they're opponents, I mean, I have great admiration and respect for guys like Jerome McGinley, whom I saw come through and play in Kamloops, or Jordan Eberle when he played in Regina, or, you know, there's countless others. I can, I can rattle them off and uh, – uh, 
you know, even even on the Blades team, Braden Holtby, who's a Stanley Cup champion, played in Saskatoon. There, there's all kinds of them. And there is where the glamour is for me, is in seeing those young men. And even the coaches. A lot of coaches have moved on up and have gone through. You mentioned Ken Hitchcock. Uh, there's all kinds of them like that. Uh, I look now at Dave Lowry being the head coach of the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, many years in the Western Hockey League in Calgary, Victoria, and Brandon. And uh, uh, those are relationships that you have with those people that you're, you cherish. And then you see them go on to great things and the higher levels. And you think to yourself, they deserve it. That's wonderful. I'm thrilled to pieces for them. Les, when you take a look at 2000 games, is there, is there one thing about it? This is going to be a weird question. So one thing about <laughs> it, were you now looking back and you think to yourself, how did I survive that? Or is there one thing for some guys, for me, it was the West swing out of Moose Jaw that would take maybe 16 hours just to get to Spokane. And that was the one thing, the one negative thing for me in the entire time I was there where I went, I can't believe I made it through that. Or or having the bus go off the road. Thankfully, nobody got hurt. We've mm-hmm. seen plenty of, we've seen more than enough bus episodes in the Western League and throughout the prairies. But is there one thing where you think to yourself, I can't believe that, that I kind of survived that? How about opening night? Yeah. <laughs> Very first game. We're in the Agrodome in Regina. Okay. So we inherit at the Saskatoon Media Group where I work at CJWW Radio. We inherit from CFQC, good old CFQC Radio in Saskatoon. That is no more. It's into receivership. Our company is taking it over and going to eventually turn it into an FM signal. But the, the old AM station had the old Sport 3 mixer. You know that. Oh, yeah. And we get it, we inherit it, and our engineer takes a look at it, cleans it up, makes sure that everything's working, shows me how to put it together and and plug it all in and make sure it works. I do it, fine, no problem. Away we go. First game in Regina, September 1994. Get to the Agrodome, do all my pregame interviews, get everything set up, go to plug in the unit, and nothing. Not a thing. There's not a drop of power going through. Okay. Now what do I do? <laughs> yeah. There, there, there's a phone close by. I could probably use the phone and, and start trying to, to drone into it. And we do that for a little bit, but it's, it's not the same. And it's dropping out and everything else for whatever reason. Thankfully, there was an engineer from CKRM radio in Regina that came by, said, Hey, I'm going back to the studios. I fixed up Paul Edmonds and made sure he's ready to go. I'll go get some gear from our place and bring it back and get you on the air. Well, by the time he got back and did that with the old red broadcast phone and an old mixer, (laughs) it was late in the second period. The game was pretty much done. It was 5-1 for the Blades on the way to an 8-3 win, as I recall that particular evening. But, I mean, I got through that. Yeah. Myself, I'm thinking to myself, Boy, there's people listening that are going, who the heck is this clown? Where did we get him from? He can't even get on the air to start his, <laughs> his broadcasting time with the Blades. Yeah. You know, I got through that. Uh, that. That was big. That was big for me. Did you consider the bus sanctuary for you as well as the players? Because for me, it just seemed like there was a peaceful, it was a peaceful zone in some respects, not necessarily quiet, but it just seemed that when you were on that bus and you've done plenty of those trips, where you get on there and you just feel like you're one big unit moving down the highway, even though you're the media guy and the, the players are, especially the veterans are at the back of the bus. There yeah. is a little bit of a hierarchy on the bus, but it's still a unit of one. Did you feel that and oh, still yeah, do? Absolutely. I'll always have felt that. Uh, I have my place. I know where I am. I know where I sit in the pecking order and that's fine. I have my phone or my you know, plug it in. I listen to music. I'm working away. I'm doing my thing, sleeping, whatever the case may be. The bus is indeed a sanctuary in that respect, in that I have time to myself to collect my thoughts and to make sure that whatever's going on in my life, whatever's going on as far as getting ready to do the next game, I'm able to have it done in peace. Everybody knows to leave me alone. And that's, and that's, I'm very appreciative of all the people that I have had a chance to work alongside with the Saskatoon Blades over 28 seasons. Did you get two seats or one? Two, always, right. always have had two, yep. never, uh, I shouldn't say never on the odd occasion, but very rarely. <laughs> I always welcome players to come up. If you want to come up and just shoot the shit. 
that was oh, a, that, that was always Everybody a lot of fun for me. That, but I, I don't know. Some of them, some of them, I, I don't know. They think maybe that they're intruding on my space. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I never tell them they can't come and, yeah. and sit and chat. I, I would welcome it absolutely. If if you're going to sit in one of the front two seats on the on the bus in the loops back in the day, you better be ready to talk because. Hitch lived and breathed hockey. <laughs> All he wanted to do was win or lose. Yeah, um, yeah. That always struck me as, as uh, funny because sometimes you didn't want to talk hockey. You wanted to rest, but his brain was still working. Um, mm. Less so many seasons, so many uh, teams. Uh, I don't know if I've ever asked Brim this question, but I'll ask you because I, I often think about it too. Best player, whether it was uh, in Saskatoon or just in the league, and you've got a longer reference point than I do, that you thought was going to be a surefire star in the National Hockey League, but was never able to replicate their dominance uh, from from junior at a higher level. Hmm. Very early in my time in Saskatoon, there was a kid by the name of Frank Bannum yep. who played in the early to mid 1990s. He scored 83 goals in the 1995, 96 season, 83. Now back then the goaltending is nowhere near as it is today. There's so much more athletic today. There's so much more fight to them. They, yep. Their equipment is so much better than what it was back then. There was a lot of Homer Simpson goaltending that went on back then where a shot could come from anywhere and it would find its way in. The goaltender would go, Dull, you know, because it would, it would somehow find a way past him. And, and Bantam had that way of doing things in order to make things go into the net. But he was never able to replicate that at the professional level in North America. Now, when he went overseas, he became a big star. And of course he ended up playing for Hungary of all places. He was able to get dual citizenship there and played for Hungary at the last uh, winter Olympics uh, as a, as a very much older man by comparison, as far as hockey players are concerned, but Frank just, I, I thought he had everything that you needed in order to be a big star and it never happened for him. And conversely, was there a guy that, that you watched whether it was Saskatoon or the league, where you said to yourself, this guy is NHL quality, but nobody nobody, or a few people don't believe in him. Was there a guy like that? I'll use for me, well, I had Theo Fleury and Moose Jaw, so I got a, a steady diet of watching Theron play. And while he was small, there were a lot of naysayers. People said he'll never make it. I saw it immediately. I knew that he had, you know, to get to Theron, he had to go through the stick. That's all little guys who got that. So I never really doubted he'd ever make it, even though there were a lot of naysayers. But did you ever watch anybody where you you actually were probably uh, vouching for this guy maybe when you were talking to scouts? Yeah, I think uh, there's a contemporary one right away that comes to mind playing for the Chicago Blackhawks in Brandon Hagel, who, again, similar to Fleury, smaller guy, tremendous junior hockey talent. And you wonder to yourself, can he stand up to the rigors of playing professional hockey against the behemoths that are out there uh, and make a good go of it. And yeah, it took him a couple of seasons in or of, of playing in the American league in Rockford before he was able to make his way up there. But boy, you can't get Brandon Hagel out of that Chicago lineup. Now he's a big part of the Blackhawks team. And that's a guy that it would I'll give him amongst many, I could probably scratch my head and find all kinds of guys like that who have uh, been able to do that. I mean, Corey Sarge would be another one yeah. playing with the blades uh, that, you know, had them had the tools, uh, had some issues with it in his junior days, but when he got his chance in the national hockey league, it took his time before he finally got there, but he has a Stanley cup ring in his time with the Tampa Bay lightning. Uh, so that's, I, I, to me, there's another guy right there that uh, had all the tools and took his, took his time and all of a sudden blossomed forth after that. Les, uh, this is a common question these days. People use the Mount Rushmore example, but I, <laughs> I got I got to ask you uh, this much time covering this hockey club. You've got to pick four. Ooh. Wow. Oh boy. Who are the best? Gotta pick four. The four. four. Who are the four best? Who's your Mount Rushmore when it comes to the Saskatoon Blades? Okay. My time. Yeah. Braden Holtby and Wool. Stefan Elliott on defense. Okay. Up front. 
Uh, I'll probably go with, well, I'm going to go with a, with a, with a tough guy in Darcy Hordachuk. Okay. Yes. Because he was, he was incredible. I, I love Darcy Hordachuk. Uh, he absolutely ran roughshod over the Regina Pats in a ser- playoff series in <laughs> 2000. And I'll go contemporary for the, for the other forward and talk about Kirby Doc. Okay. Gotcha. Those will be four. And I'm missing all kinds of guys in there, but oh, yeah. those, those are guys that, that come to mind right away. 2,000 games, you celebrate number 2,000 in Regina, of all places. Of all places. Of yes. all places. And, and uh, Moose Jaw guy going into Regina was always tough. A Saskatoon play-by-play guy going into Regina yeah. was always tough. But they did something special for you, and I, I did watch the video of it, but explain to everybody exactly what happened there. Well, I was stunned that this is what ended up happening because normally our programming here at, at the CJWW doesn't want us to have the anthem on the air prior to the start of the game. So I'm always trying to figure out, especially on the road, okay, how when should I be cutting to break so that I don't get the anthem on the air? Right. And I thought that I was getting to that point last Wednesday in Regina, and so I call for the break, and we go to break, and all of a sudden I look up on the video screen, and here's this tribute video starting. And it's five minutes long, and there's no anthem yet. So I'm telling my operator down the line, hold, hold. well, we're going to have a little bit of a wait here. We're going to burn a whole whack of commercials right now. <laughs> Some people may not be terribly happy about it, but I'm going to stick to what the programmer says. We ain't playing the anthem. It's until we finally hear the anthem. That's maybe when we'll consider coming back. And this video is going on and on and on. And I'm, I'm getting a little sheepish because I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is wonderful. Thank you. Everybody who's contributed to this, but then I'm in Regina. This is yes. not Saskatoon. This is not Sastel Center where fans are li- likely going to be riveted to, well, somewhat riveted. <laughs> Certainly the Regina fans are going, what is going on here? Who's this person? Why are we watching this? I have a great amount of thanks and gratitude to the Regina Pats hockey team for taking the Blades produced video and allowing it to be played in the pregame ceremony prior to the game on Wednesday. I didn't expect that. It was very nice. It was wonderful. It was great to see a lot of the faces that were there and the people that I've come to know and love and appreciate from junior hockey over the course of the years. And um, it, it was humbling. It was almost overwhelming, but it was, it, was, it was wonderful. At the end of the day, though, hockey fans in Regina are great hockey fans. Whether or not they you're are. a Blades broadcaster, a Warriors broadcaster, or somebody who's covering the Blazers... They're hockey fans and they're great. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're out of, and I think, you know what, that goes for most every place, though, in the league. Yep. Everybody has really good fans. I, I've even heard from Prince Albert Raider fans who are appreciative of the fact that I've done 2,000 games, even though after a playoff game in 2019, I told a segment of them to go suck it. Uh, because the Blades had come back from a two-games-to-nothing deficit and tied it up 2-2, and the Raiders, who were supposed to go on and win the title that year handily and did, ended up winning the the Western Hockey League Championship in 2019. But the Blades weren't even supposed to be able to compete with them in that series. That was supposed to be a four-game straight. And when they won game four at home, and there's fans wandering by, and we're live on location on the concourse, and there's Raider fans giving me the finger and yelling at me, and our fans sitting there are looking back and yelling at them. And I said, hey, you guys, this thing's supposed to be over. You guys are supposed to have won the series. You're in trouble now. You guys are afraid, aren't you? I said, I got two words for you. Suck it. And my wife is sitting right there in front of me, and she goes, what did you say? <laughs> she says to me afterwards, why did you do that? I says, because I got fired up and I was ready to go, darn it. <laughs> so Good for you. It happens every once in a while. It was fun. We had a great time. Uh, but, but the Raider fans are wonderful. I love them. I mean, they're passionate for their team, just like everybody's fans are passionate for their team. <laughs> let's, uh, let's also talk about how you even get started here, because you and I go back to 1990, where uh, I was on the Jets broadcast on CKY. Yep. And you were doing a pre and a post game show on CJOB and did a great job. You were beating the crap out of us on the post game <laughs> show in particular. Uh, but but it was always a fun rivalry. Uh, I moved away. You moved in to uh, into the position when the radio rights changed hands. Why did why did you leave 
why did you leave your hometown, which is Winnipeg, and go to Saskatoon? That's an interesting reach for me. Look how it's worked out for you, and look how technology came along with you and has changed the way you broadcast games over that period of time. But take me back to 1990 and just kind of carry us through a little bit to now. Well, it was a dream job for me to work at CJOB. I mean, growing up in Winnipeg, back in the 70s, the World Hockey Association Jets, and Ken, the late Ken Fryer Nicholson was yeah. the voice of that team. I mean, it was not unusual for me to have these headphones, this little set of earbuds, yeah. attached to a transistor radio and tucked inside the pillowcase late at night listening to the Jets play in San Diego against the Mariners with the Fryer. <laughs> yeah. I would do that religiously every game. I'm supposed to be sleeping, supposed to be thinking about going to school the next day. No, I'm listening to the Jets because I love the Jets, and I loved Ken Nicholson, just a phenomenal man. Yep. Um, I get the job at OB to help out with hosting pre- and post-game shows starting in 1983, and I get to work with another great broadcaster in Bob Irving, Yeah. Uh, my mentor. I mean, he taught me so much. We get to 1990, and all of a sudden – the broadcast landscape in Winnipeg changes. The Blue Bombers come back to CJOB. The Jets come back to CJOB. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, there might be somewhere along the line an opportunity for me to be involved on a broadcast crew because that's ultimately what I want to do. I want to be either doing play-by-play or doing color. To me, that's the penultimate. I want to be able to see North America. I'm single at the time. This is great. I ended up meeting a woman that during that time and I ended up marrying her, but it's been tough on her having me away as much as there was. I mean, there've been times where there were things going on in her world medically. And I'm here. I am in San Francisco uh, with the jets getting ready to, you know, do a game out of the old cow palace against the sharks. Um, But I'm getting away from this a little bit, but, they really, I was, I was kind of like the backup guy. I was sort of like that nice thing to have in reserve, but you're never really going to get that opportunity to be a part of that broadcast crew on a full-time basis. And when I pushed a little bit about it, they said no. And it quite frankly pissed me off. But you had Don uh, Whitman standing in the way. I mean, Whit. Well, well no, but that's fine. Right? That, absolutely fine. Yeah. I, I understand that. But... I still had my career aspirations. Yes. And so when I'm told that it's not happening, okay, maybe I'm going to have to look elsewhere. And, you know, we started to look elsewhere and this opportunity came along and I thought, okay, experience, let's get some actual play-by-play experience. And, you know, cause I'd done some baseball, I'd done some basketball, I'd done curling on the radio for heaven's sake. Uh, I'd done all that stuff. It's time to, you know, get into the hockey bit. And on a full-time basis. And when the Saskatoon situation came available as they changed up radio stations and radio companies, and I knew a guy that was working at the, at the station in Saskatoon, I made my, my intentions known that, hey, I'd love to do this. And they said, sure. So, yeah, I could have stayed in Winnipeg. I could have, you know, I was already out of CJOB. I was already broadcasting the Winnipeg Gold Eyes with our good friend Peter Young. Yep. And... They said to me, you can stay and help out do baseball, but you got to sell ads. Well, I've never been a salesperson before. I needed, I needed the, I needed the guaranteed income coming in as being a full-time guy working for a radio station, doing what I wanted to do. And Saskatoon offered me that and the rest is history. Well, 2000 games, you obviously made the wrong call. Yeah, right? it was just, what a disaster <laughs> that was. That's, uh, I mean, when you settle in and do what you've done less, I mean, it doesn't matter to me whether it's uh, the dub, uh, the American Hockey League, the National Hockey League. When you settle in and do the kind of job you've done for that many years and that many games, that's something to look back on and go, hey, this is a pretty good ride so far. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, there's no regrets. I have no regrets. And a lot of people say that and it's a cliche, but really, truly, thankfully, I have no regrets and I'm thrilled to pieces that I've been able to keep it on side here in Saskatoon for as long as I have. There were opportunities to move. I could have gone to Calgary on two different occasions, but I'd already done at OB what I was being asked to do in Calgary with the Flames. And I thought, yeah, I know Peter Marr wants me to join him. 
and it had been fun working with Peter Marr. Yeah. But beyond that, uh, the offer wasn't that great. Money-wise, I was making more in Saskatoon than I would have been making in Calgary. So what kind of sense does that make? And, and a sideways move as far as what I was going to do, that also didn't make much sense. So I stayed. And yeah, the, the NHL chance never came along again. And I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm at peace with that without a doubt. Before we let you go, who's winning in the Western Hockey League this year? Who's going to represent Ooh. the East and who's going to represent the West? Oh, wow. That's a good question in the West because we don't play any of them this year, the yeah. way the schedule's worked out this season. But I watch it from afar and I like what I see in Kamloops and I like what I see in Seattle and I like what I see in Everett. And so there's a pretty good, there, there's going to be some great second round series there involving two of those teams. And then out in our conference, Ooh. I, I, I begin, at the beginning, it looked like Winnipeg was going to run away from everybody. Well, they've fallen back towards the pack. And now, I think the dark horse, because we just saw them on Saturday, and the Red Deer Rebels kicked the blades from one end of the rink to the other right here in Saskatoon. Uh, I think they're going to be a team to be uh, watched out for. And the Edmonton Oil Kings are this massive all-star team. They've got, what, five, six Team Canada players on their team with the addition of Justin Sorda from the Vancouver Giants. Yeah. Uh, the Oil Kings are good. They're old. I mean, they dressed 13 players in t- out of 20 back on Friday, age 19 and 20. They're all so in for this season. That, yeah. not, there's not 16, 17s, 18s. Those are the minority. Yeah. The Blades, like the average age of that team that Edmonton dressed out of that 20-man roster on Friday was 18 and a half. Yeah. The Blades' average age that night was 17.8. If you don't think seven-tenths of a year difference per player isn't worth something, trust me, it is. Over the long haul, over a seven-game series, night after night, big size, big experience, you're looking at a team there that I think is really capable of winning the whole ball of wax. Not just in the Western Hockey League. I would dare say the Memorial Cup, finally, a WHL team might come through and win it in the name of the Edmonton Oil Kings. I, I think they're very good. 2,000 games, congrats. I'm proud of you, man. Thank you, sir. It's nice to hear from you, Bryn. I'm glad that you're doing well. I know what the personal situations that you've had to overcome. I'm thrilled to pieces for you that you're able to do this. And Robin, nice to see you again, sir. Uh, It's been a long time, but both of you, phenomenal. And I appreciate the time that you've given me. An old broadcaster like me, this, I mean... It's it's really kind of silly, actually, as far as I'm concerned, to have this many people make the the fuss over it as they have. But I'm I'm grateful to everybody who has. And uh, guys, look forward to watching more of your podcast as time goes on. Excellent. I can tell you this: if you and I had chatted in 1990 and said we'd be doing a podcast in 2022, <laughs> you and I both would have looked at each other and went, "What the hell is a podcast?" Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, The Outsiders is powered by the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. Had a chance to talk to Brent just the other day, and we were talking about the month of February. Here we go. Yeah, we're kind of starting to slowly move into spring, and Brent was telling me the single-family home market in Edmonton right now is red hot. Sales are up. Inventory is down. They love that. And the median sales price for homes is up 6% as of this time last year. So I guess the question is, do you know somebody who's looking about buying or maybe selling a home this year? Because if you do, now's a great time to get a hold of Brent or any of his team at the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. They'd be happy to assist you with the sale of that new place or the purchase of that new superstar in your life. And you can find them. It's real easy. 780-464-0075. That's 780-464-0075 or mcintoshgroup.ca. They'll start the process with a complimentary evaluation of your current home. No obligation whatsoever and no deadline for the offer, but don't let the market pass you by, especially when the market is like this right now. Things are looking great. So uh, the only other thing we ask you to do is when you get a hold of the Macintosh Group, tell them the outsider sent you. What a show that one was today. What an episode. Where do you even want to start with this? Let's first things first, a big thank you to Victor Kui for joining us, the new president of the Edmonton Elks. How can you not be jacked up after that conversation, Robin? Well, I tell you what, sometimes you, you know, you, you have concerns and, and as a member of the media that you, you've got to write about them or talk about them. And there's been a lot of them. 
in the last several years. When I look at the direction it seems the club is going now, I'm very hopeful. This is a really sharp uh, executive who knows how the game is played on more levels than one. And uh, uh, I'm hopeful that we're going to see things uh, improve here in a hurry. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm pretty pumped up about it. I thought it was great. It was great of him to give us some time. He's given a lot of people, fans, a lot of time. And I've liked what Chris Jones has actually done here in the past few weeks in terms of being aggressive and going after guys. A lot of veteran guys I've noticed too, but we'll get into that later. But uh, big thank you to Victor for joining us. Also, big thank you to Les Lazarick, the voice of the Saskatoon Blades on CJWW, or as we used to say when I was in Saskatchewan back in the 80s, CJ Couple W's. Anyway, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun having Les on. Uh, he's had a great career and will continue to do great things for the Blades and the Western Hockey League. So that's pretty much it. I, I, don't, I think uh, we got to wrap this baby up. It's been a little longer than usual, but well worth it. So, you know, as Victor was talking about how to reach out and, and get a hold of him, you can get a hold of us. The Twitter handle is really simple. It's at Outsiders2020. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe or follow us, our RSS feed, on any of your favorite ear candy sites like Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Cast, etc., by following or subscribing in the RSS feed. Every time we drop a new episode, it automatically comes to you. And we're also on YouTube as well. Robin is recording from his luxurious studio in southwest Edmonton. I'm at the Road 55 studio in downtown Edmonton once again. It's nice to be back in here after a couple weeks off, but it's just been great. Robin, thanks for your time. That was fun today. Yes, it was, and you're very welcome. I think I'll give you some more next week at this time. I look forward to it. We'll talk to you then, okay? Okay, see ya. (laughs) Bye-bye, boys! Have fun storming the castle! Road 55. (laughs) And that's the end.